0: Get in the action on the Action Addicts Podcast.
1: No greater faction than the action movie scene. Get in the action on the Action Addicts Podcast. Your satisfaction, action on.
0: Hello, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Action Addicts podcast. I'm your host, Scott Wiley, and you're listening to a brand new episode. And today we're going to be talking about the man from Uncle, but not the old ones. This is the reboot that didn't really reboot because there wasn't a sequel. But unfortunately, as you're going to hear myself and today's guest, Wendy Freeman, discuss that might have actually ended up being for the best because, uh, One of the people who star in this film kind of maybe isn't the best person to want to uh, front load your franchise with. So even if this film had been a success, I don't really know if they'd have gotten anything else off the ground anyway. But that's a problem, you know, for scholars and historians. This is about the actual film in question. Wendy was a delight to have on, as she always was. If this is the first time hearing Wendy, she was previously on to talk about Cop Shop, and uh, I warn you now, when we get towards the end of this episode, we kind of massively veer off topic uh, in true Action Addicts form. Surprisingly, it hasn't happened for a couple of episodes, but uh, we we, we get right back to our branding of talking about something completely different. It does have a tenuous link to the episode, as always. It starts off as a discussion about other Guy Ritchie films, because this is a Guy Ritchie film. And uh, from there, it kind of divulges into something else. <laughs> Which was kind of the signal that perhaps we had exhausted our discussion on The Man from UNCLE. So, yeah, we kind of save all of our off topicness or but yeah, a good portion of it anyway, for the very end. I'm going to hand you over to Wendy and myself now, because uh, we actually do give a decent description of the film right from the word go and who's in it and why. So I'm going to let us do that rather than end up repeating myself. So I shall see you guys for the outro. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. We're here and we're live in the room. And as you will have heard me already say, hopefully, we're going to be talking about The Man from Uncle, and it is the version from 2015, not the original TV show, and not any of the films that spawned from that TV show. Joining me today, we have returning guest Wendy. How are you doing, Wendy?
1: Hey, I'm doing all right. I'm so happy to be here.
0: I, would, I just want the audience to know that Wendy just waved when I said, How are you doing? and then I think remembered that the audience can't see her. <laughs>
1: you to feel my wave i wanted to feel my presence you know?
0: ah okay yeah. <laughs> we've gone into ghost whisper now there's a presence in the room i can feel it <laughs> <laughs> so for anyone who might be familiar with yourself wendy would you just like to remind anyone that didn't listen to our previous episode which was on cop shop
1: yes yeah well you know uh i'm wendy freeman i live in chicago i play drums in a band called Sunny Veneer, and we've uh, released our our latest album. It's called Doves and Herons, if you want to listen to that on Spotify. And as far as my action credentials, uh, I've been doing uh, uh, MMA for about like seven years, and I've been an amateur Muay Thai fighter. I won two fights last year.
0: I like like the way you felt the need to. It's not just you. A lot of people do this as well. It's like my action credentials. It's like it's it's not a club. (laughs) <laughs> all are welcome you don't need to prove yourself but if there was one you'd definitely pass
1: <laughs> i just want to say i can hold it down in the club yeah.
0: yes exactly you, you you just wanted to show off that other people might come on and uh talk a good game but you're out there living the game you know <laughs>
1: <laughs> well i love that we have so many people in our little action crew who like have experience and know things about military stuff and know things about like weapons and know things about like specific things you know i think it's interesting whenever any of us have any sort of background that gives more insight into our our love of action
0: yeah yeah a hundred percent at the time of recording wendy won't have heard this yet but the audience will have probably already heard my episode with uh, marshall teague and that's pretty much what me and him talked about which is that you know having his military background and martial arts background and it it really does inform your opinions on what you like and if you can turn that part of your brain off you could enjoy a much wider amount of entertainment but it's always nice when you watch something and it ticks all the boxes in your brain of i know this is how it works in reality so we were talking a while back about a bunch of different films and then the one we ended up settling on was the man from uncle now, depending on when this episode goes live, this sentence may age poorly, but I think it's fair to say that one of the reasons why we were talking about it is because Henry Cavill's name was kind of in the news for a, a pretty long length of time for not great
1: reasons for his no, career. No, no, Army. Army's name. Henry is clean. There's nothing wrong with Henry Cavill. No, no, no. There's, there's nothing wrong with Henry, but he
0: left the Witcher, oh came came back as the superman and then left again as the superman like oh. never yeah, that's what i was referring to
1: <laughs> oh they <thank God. laughs> <laughs> well they both been in the news for very different reasons
0: <laughs> oh i forgot that Arnie st- army stuff is um so recent i keep thinking that was ages ago oh but, no um, that
1: documentary the, did you see the documentary it only came out like a couple months ago so no in that case but, uh, yeah, like, it really, really went into, like, the abusive nature of his entire, like, you know, rich-ass family, and how, like, uh, like all of these men, his grandfather and his father, both did, like, really awful things to women, and, of course, Army, you know, and his, uh, you know, the, the cannibalism allegations. Oh, yeah, I saw all of that. I saw, like, the yeah.
0: the allegations, the, yeah. the the not-so-great stories, the, yeah. the, yeah. the text
1: messages, all.
0: Oh. Mm. Yeah, all all of that I I saw, but I did I did didn't know there was a documentary. I'll I'll have to go and look that up later. But um, <laughs> that is the only problem when you talk about this film now, because it's like, uh, regardless of how much he's not a great person in real life, I can't deny that I quite like the character he plays. So that is something that oh. I was just gonna say off the bat: is the person might be an asshole, but when we're talking about him in the context of this film. We're talking about the character, not the person. So any praise that we give him is for his ability as an actor, not anything else. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, it's very, very easy for me to separate the art from the artist on this in, on this one, because A, I, I, I've seen Call Me By Your Name, but I think that's probably the only other thing I've seen him in. And B, he's just such a cartoonish Russian in this, that I immerse myself in the character of Ilya Karyakin, you know? Like... like I, uh, you know, my my experience with Army Hammer as a person is is very very much separated from my belief in this character. You know, so so I think it's easier to to separate the two.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, and I think it's the same thing for Henry Cavill because it's so funny that he is so close to being James Bond in this film, but he isn't <laughs> because he's got an American accent, and it's just like ah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: So shall we do any the, the background about, uh, you know, the man from uncle TV show or, or do we know yeah, I, I
0: was just going to ask you, were you familiar with the TV show or, or did you watch it at all?
1: Yeah, my grandfather, you know, watched it. I remember it was on like on reruns on A&E or something in the 80s and 90s or something. So like every so often I would I would catch it, you know, but uh, but yeah, I mean, I pretty much I love Cold War stories. I love, uh, you know, very campy Russian you know, I I I like any anything like that. You know, I like anything where spies have to work together. I you know like it really it ticks all my boxes. And it's funny because after this after this movie came out, I was in like a you know a used bookstore and they had a couple of the novelizations from the original series. You know, oh and So yeah. like I had bought a couple little paperback novels. And I was like, I could just mentally insert, you know, Cavill and and Army Hammer into this novel, and it's fine. You know, <laughs> it's like having new adventure.
0: Yeah, I can't say I've like properly watched the original TV series, but I have seen odd episodes here and there. And I, I, I at one point did start like actually watching it because I think my dad bought the first season on DVD, uh, a while back because even though he, he watched it not necessarily by choice. Cause again, my granddad liked it. So he watched yeah. it. So that meant my dad watched it regardless but I'm pretty sure that he re- he liked it at the time anyway. But then the actor that plays Ilya in the original television series is probably more well-known today as the character of Ducky in the original NCIS, which has been going for like 20 plus years or something ridiculous now. And, you know, because of that character and how much that we both enjoyed him in that, I think that was an excuse for us to sort of, Watch other stuff he'd done that my dad had probably seen anyway, but I obviously hadn't. And yeah, I remember Man from Uncle was one of them. And we watched one of the films, which was weird because again, hadn't seen any of the TV series. So I don't think that was the best way to experience that for the first time. <laughs> but yeah, I like the, I like the fact that this film is kind of how they meet and form. Whereas in the TV series, you're kind of already meeting them after the fact which was quite a common thing for these types of reboots to do, where they would take a a franchise or a show and then go, right, we want to reboot it and make it a Hollywood film, but instead of actually, like, making a film-length version of an episode, we're just going to do the origin story. I think a lot of people got tired of that, but I feel like this one does it really well because, yes, it is kind of an origin story on how they meet, but... The story itself and the case they're trying to solve and what they end up having to deal with, what starts out as something small and then gets bigger and bigger. It's just a good story, in my opinion, like you said, especially if you like that campy 1960s-esque spy genre. And if you're a fan of the old James Bonds or the Kingsman films today and you didn't give this one a shot, I think that people would really like it. But for whatever reason, it just didn't do that well at the time.
1: Yeah. Well, it's also interesting because uh, the show came out at the same time as, like, The Saint and you're, like, The Avengers with Emma Peel. And, you know, there was, there was like, that whole interest of, of you know, sort of spy stories like that. So, so, I mean, I think, I mean, personally, I think The Avengers was probably the most popular or the best one, you know. I mean, probably because Emma Peel was so hot. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but, but, and Uncle, it also had a spinoff. It had the girl from Uncle. Yes. Yeah, Yeah, I can't Mm -hmm. say I've
0: ever seen that. So you you, you feel free to tell
1: us. (laughs) Okay, I was just going to say, anything
0: you know about that, feel free to share.
1: No, I have no idea. I don't think it ran very long. It must not have run very long at all.
0: (laughs) But yeah, no, you are right. There there definitely was this fascination with spy shows. I mean, there was also I Spy, which I think started before The Man from Uncle, which we won't talk about. And (laughs) there was quite a lot of Cold War era I think, inspired stories, which I think kind of made Man from Uncle different because one of the main characters was Russian. So it was sort of doing that, the idea that, you know, tensions might be high now, but people can still work together.
1: Yeah, you know, trying to give you a little glass-nosed moment there, I guess.
0: (laughs) So did you first watch this film in 2015, then?
1: So I saw this movie three times in the theater. Because I heard it oh, wasn't okay. doing well. And I was determined. <laughs> I single-handedly wanted to save the box office for this movie. <laughs> I had seen the trailer at, like, Comic-Con or something. And whenever they released the trailer. And I was like, oh my god, Guy Ritchie. And, and it's, you know, I, I love I love these Cold War kind of spy things. And it just the whole style of it looks right up my alley. I was like, I'm gonna definitely go see this movie. And I remember it came out, it came out in August. It came out right around my birthday. And yeah, I went to see it three times.
0: Yeah, I, I, I don't think I did see it in the cinema. I'll be honest. It wasn't because I didn't want to. I think just at the time, I can't even really remember that time. Um, I just don't think that there was anybody else that I was that was interested outside um, from people that I knew weren't going to go to the cinema. So I think I think this was definitely also around the time when I was like kind of done with audiences. Uh, I've kind of regressed, uh, on that. And now I don't mind going to the cinema, but there was a period where going to the cinema was kind of like, I just don't want to deal with people. You know, I'm quite happy to sit, uh, at home. And at the time I was still living with my dad and he has a surround sound set up, you know, t- big TV mounted on the walls. So it's like, sorry, I know that it's not quite the same, but I can actually just focus and enjoy the film. Whereas in the theater, you, other people are not always that respectful of the fact other people have paid money to be there let's put it that way (laughs) Mm -hmm. but i did really enjoy it when i watched it and i do it is a shame because like you say it, it allegedly it had a budget of 75 million and worldwide it only just about managed to gross 107 which sounds good but probably didn't accrue back the marketing costs for just us and canada that was only 45 million so We received it better than you guys did, (laughs) (laughs) which I do find that interesting sometimes when, you know, this isn't the first film that I've talked about on this show that has done better when it came to Europe than it did in America and then, you know, Asia as well. And I sometimes wonder if that's just because these sort of what I would call a throwback film, it's not. I feel like sometimes American audiences see that and they're like, oh, that's old. I'm not interested. Whereas Europe and the UK don't seem to have that same attitude. It's like, oh, these are like the old films. Excellent. You know what I mean?
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, also, the thing that I love the most about this film is that it captures the style, but it's not not like uh, it's not Austin Powers. It doesn't lean into the camp. It's not like silly about it. Like they really, really make a, a great effort to you know, the the fashions and the music and, like, everything, the set design. Like, he put so much work into it and, and especially even doing, like, the montages, like, the way they tried to do all the, the sort of, uh you know, the transitions and stuff where it looked very 60s and it, it did all that and I felt it played into that, but I didn't feel at any point that it was trying to be wink-wink. You know, I didn't feel like it was uh being cutesy. I thought it was, I thought it was really, really faithful.
0: Yeah, no, I, I think the film's opening does a great job of even if you're not the most historically aware and you don't really have any clue what was going on at the time the way it opens with those newspaper reels it really does sort of set the scene that newsflash kids uh the world nearly ended before all of us was born we don't have uh we don't have the championship title on that one unfortunately despite what some people think it's like horrible things have happened long before we got here and this is one of those times and you know the world got so close to basically just ending itself by pushing a couple buttons it's a it's quite scary to look back on you could go down that rabbit hole all day but i do really like the way the film sets that up and it reminds you how bad it, you know how badly fragmented germany was that literally had a wall separating the countries and the fact that we get this sort of dark opening with a little bit of, you know, humor and charm, I think. But then you get introduced to Henry Cavill's Napoleon Solo, and I, I love the fact that I just made a note that Henry Cavill might be the most polite American spy I've ever heard. Some might even say that he's the most British American spy, because <laughs> <laughs> I, I couldn't, I couldn't help but notice it way more this time around. Because obviously, I think he has become such a bigger star. In the years after this, and it's just his mannerisms. Although he does have an American accent, or at least a twang, everything about the way he composes himself feels like this is his audition for James Bond. You know, the cla the classic Bond.
1: <laughs> right. Right. Well, it's so interesting. Like, like the way the over enunciations and the way that he speaks, and like, like I love the fact that when he and Jared Harris both say the word Nazi. You know. Yeah. <laughs> It's so funny to me like like yeah like he he really really does like very very it's it like he just has the greatest accent. He's the greatest American ever. <laughs> it's just the way that he enunciates and chooses to pronounce certain words and chooses to to clip his, you know, all of his diction is just so fantastic. It really is so good. And it's it's also funny because I, right after this I turned on the TV and Mission Impossible Fallout was on. And uh you know, with, with Henry Cavill. Yeah. yeah, And, and, and he's so uh, like, he's so great in that as well, you know, and he's, I don't know. I just, I think those are like my two favorite things of, of his. I just like seeing him as a spy. Well, yeah. I mean,
0: I also think they're great examples of how much range he actually has because yes, he's playing spies in both films, but they're two completely different characters. I mean, like you said, the way he, holds himself and the way he's very choosy with his words and he likes to be very eloquent in this film and then you go to mission impossible where he is you know basically the always aggressive slightly gruff if you put them side by side there's nothing similar between them other than the fact that they kind of look alike and even then they don't actually look that alike
1: (laughs) well he does have that great mustache
0: yeah, but it, it's not... I mean, yes, the mustache does help. Um, not Um, Didn't help Superman so much, but it, it helped him in that film. But, you know, if you put them side by side, one's always got like a scowl on his face and looks like he wants to, you know, start just beating up people. And the other one looks like he would be much happier at a, an auction house somewhere with a scarf wrapped around him. And I do love the fact that when the, you, you eventually get the breakdown of their skill set, they kind of explain that because... That is exactly where he wants to be. He is very much somebody that wants the finer things in life. He wants to live in the five-star hotels and go to the finest restaurants and take in the arts. But that is not his life.
1: (laughs) But I love the fact that he is just skeevy enough that he profited off the war. You know, like they explain, he profited off the war. He learned all these languages. Like, he did everything he could to be able to make money after his time was over, you know? Like, like while I'm in Europe, I may as well steal some art, you know? <laughs> and they use it to such great effect when he has to go to the uh, the Guerra party there.
0: Yes. Yeah, like, he, he is your archetypal rogue character that... He's got all of the skills that could easily make him the bad guy, but he isn't, because there's a small part of him that still believes in doing the right thing, he just doesn't much care how you get there. Because the other thing I like that is introduced early on, like as I say, you you meet this character, he goes through the checkpoint, he goes and finds the mechanic, and then he starts talking to her. He's very calm, very eloquent, kinda posh, and then he, you know, he he sort of moves her around. He's like, Could you just stand there for me? Thank you very much. And then when you see that he's worked out that they're being chased, I love the way he can just sort of snap, and then the secret agent version of him comes out the killer, and the way they frame him in those shadows where you can just see his eyes, and you're just like, oh, that's a different person now. That's the soldier that made it through World War Two, and that's the guy that's gonna more than happily just put a bullet in the back of your head if you get in his way, and not everybody can pull off that switch. You know, they could still be intimidating, but I just think he nailed that. You know, one minute he is this really nice charming person and then the next minute there is no doubt in my mind he would more than happily kill them if that's what the mission became.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Also I love the running gag of uh of of constantly having to roll down the windows. Like yeah. they had to roll down the, like, they used to rolling down the windows like three different times the, the slow creaking of
0: I think as well uh, that was more just to be like hey audience Do you remember when you had to wind down the windows? We don't have to do that anymore. (laughs) (laughs) It's the same as like when, uh, Ilya is introduced and he's essentially, I think even uh, he doesn't quite say it, but basically he's the Terminator. You know, he just doesn't seem to be stopped by bullets, car crashes, anything. He just like, he runs fast enough to catch up to a moving car and like rip the bonnet off. Which I just thought was like there—you got a blunt force on the left-hand side, and then you've got the scalpel on the right-hand side, and it, it, they make such an odd pair, but it
1: works. Also, I love the, the the sense of style between the two. Like Henry Cavill's suits, his very well-tailored suits, and and Ilya with like uh, he always has the different little leather jackets and like the little cap on and. You know, like, it, it's just such such a different, like, I really, really like how they, how they differentiated them so much down to all the minute details.
0: Yeah, because later on in the film, you have that kind of surprising moment where Elia goes in and, you know, this is when they're trying to convince Gabby to help. And then he, like, knows everything about fashion, but, like, on the, his side of the wall. And he's like, no, 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 this, this, this will not do. And it's like, and he knows like exactly what brand he wants, like what sizes they should bring in, what material he wants. And you're like, this does not compute with the guy that we just watched literally like run all across East Germany to try and, you know, stop them from escaping. And now suddenly we've got a guy that looks like he's running a fashion show. Like you say, it just, they, they do a good job of this is what they do for a living. This is what they're actually like when they're not doing that. They also, you know, they do that, I wouldn't necessarily say it's a clever thing, but I do like the fact that they kind of give him that floor where whenever someone mentions his father or patriotism, he kind of has this almost like PTSD moment where it, it overwrites anything that he might have been previously thinking about doing, and he just goes full like for the motherland. And when I watched it this time, especially, originally, I was thinking that it's just like. um how he's had to deal with how he grew up because you know his dad got shamed and it didn't go very well but this time it almost felt like that was a deliberate thing that his trainer and his handler had actually instilled in him so that whenever he does have that moment as he kind of does at the end of the film where i don't really want to do this and then he's like what so you want to end up like your father and you want to have all that shame and then that sort of triggers him it's almost like a a little mental way of keeping him in check. And it, 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 I don't know. It, it, when I watched it this time, I picked up a wh- much more sinister stuff coming from the agencies that they work for. And because they're both basically forced to do this stuff, you know, because Napoleon Solo is literally being blackmailed to do it. Otherwise, he goes to jail. And Ely is basically doing it because he wants to redeem his family name. And it's kind of... I. I I don't know. I just I picked up on that way more this time around, rather than just the fun stuff. <laughs>
1: <laughs> right, right. Yeah, there's a mentoring candidate element. You're right about about whenever they trigger him with the the stuff as father, and and yeah, even even when when uh, Napoleon is taunting him in that that gorgeous like cafe or whatever that they're at, <laughs> where they where they give them where they meet them up for the first time. You know, it, it's it's uh, yeah, there is a lot more to to pick up on that.
0: See, I I like that cafe scene as well because A, it implies that the two spymasters know each other well and like they've met each other's wives, which is just hilarious because they're supposed to be more mortal enemies in inverted commas. And then once they've established that the two men have to work together and they've demolished an entire bathroom before they managed to say a word, which was just a funny sequence in and of itself. But then when they leave, all the people that you thought were civilians turned out to be other agents, just in case it all went sideways, and you're just like, oh, okay, yeah, they they were not going to win if either one of them objected.
1: (laughs) Yeah, there you go, another similarity to Fallout. Cavill gets two great uh, bathroom fights in both the movies.
0: Yeah, but he he doesn't uh, cock his muscles in this one, he doesn't give the arm pump... (laughs) I
1: know, <laughs> uh, but yeah, that the the fashion scene, the shopping scene was my very favorite scene in the movie. You know, just the two of them bickering about uh, you know uh, Paco Raban and, and you know Pierre Cardin or whatever. Like I just really really loved them both, knowing exactly what they wanted. And meanwhile, like uh, Alicia Vikander just didn't give a shit, you know.
0: <laughs> yeah, see. When I first watched it that scene as funny as it was I do I it's always funny to me because I always forget this Gabby is way too quick to sort of just go along with everything because like she just escaped she's screaming at solo she won't go back and then after Elia walks in that was literally the guy that was trying to chase her she storms off comes back and now she's just yep I'm on board let's just let's just do this you can you know all good And it's so funny because, obviously, spoiler alert, at the end of the film, it's revealed that she's actually been a spy in this particular assignment since before either of these two got involved, which I thought was just brilliant. But it also, when you rewatch it, kind of makes you go, oh, yeah, that's why she's like always happy to go along with it because she's trying to balance being someone that doesn't want to do it, but also, no, this is exactly what she wants to do.
1: Oh well, then that brings the question: Do you think she was trying to seduce Ilya?
0: Yeah, I I do wonder that because I think that relationship comes out of nowhere. Personally, yeah. I think <laughs> I, I, I I think that when they first have like their little moment in the hotel room, there's no reason for that. Like she goes from full on hating him and not wanting to be around him to just suddenly I've oh I've had one glass to drink, so now let's you know ha- have fun. And you just like, where did that come from?
1: <laughs> you know, I knew we two together, but that would make sense if she was kind of sent to honeypot him a little, you know.
0: Yeah, yeah, because originally that's not what she's trying to do either. It's, um, she wants him to have a drink, which was there something in the drink to make him go to sleep? And then she could go off and do whatever it is that she needed to do, because, yeah, sharing a room with him, she couldn't exactly report in. So you might be onto something there. You might have just, uh... Solve that particular annoyance of mine.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and it's interesting. This was like the year of Alicia Vikander in that in that scope as well, because like she had Ex Machina, and she was she up, up for an Oscar that year or something too for um.
0: I don't know. Sorry.
1: Yeah, she was in like like four or five movies like in that that the those couple of years, and I don't know what she's done lately. But it seemed like she was the it girl like right when this movie came out.
0: I remember her in Ex Machina, but other than that, I can't, I I genuinely couldn't tell you what she's Mm -hmm. done. And I don't, I'll quite happily say I don't follow the Oscars well enough to know who would be nominated for what or when. (laughs) Oh, apparently she was in The Green Knight, which lots of people liked. And then obviously she was, (laughs) sorry?
1: I did not like that. I didn't like The Green Knight. (laughs) But go on.
0: She was in Jason Bourne, Euphoria. Obviously, she was the reboot term, uh, I was going to say the reboot Terminator then, the reboot Tomb Raider.
1: Oh, that's uh, right. Yeah. That's right.
0: Other than that, I mean, someone else might say this film was big or whatever, but I don't recognize anything there. Not from an action point of view. And I, I don't see any big, like blockbusters. So yeah. Known for Ex Machina, Man from Uncle, The Danish Girl, and Testament of Youth, so like yes, you saying The Danish talk... Girl
1: that was because yeah. uh, what's his name had won that the the Oscar for The Danish Girl. I think she was up. Eddie for
0: Redmayne, yeah,
1: right. Eddie Redmayne won. That's right. That was a big prestige picture that year.
0: And all four of those films were 2014,
1: 2015. So right, mm-hmm. yeah, I remember that.
0: There you go. We've solved the mystery of the rise of Alicia Vikander. <laughs> Oh, it does say she won an Oscar.
1: Oh, uh, yeah, see, because I remember, like, it, she was really hot for, like, a minute, and then it, yeah. and then I guess, you know. Yeah, 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 she
0: she won, like you said, she won Supporting Actress for Danish Girl. hmm yeah. And a bunch of other awards, too, from, you know, all the other award shows out there. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but the other woman of the film, Elizabeth Debicki, is so fantastic. I love her. And she's a, she's a big girl. Is yeah, she, like, she see? is.
0: See, the funny thing is, is I spent the entire film this time around thinking I know her from something else, and I still haven't figured out what I think it is. <laughs>
1: well, she was in Tenet last year. She was in Tenet, and then she was uh, in The Night Manager, which I thought was excellent. I thought she was very good in The Night Manager.
0: Oh, it might be The Night Manager, then. I haven't watched that for a while. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's probably that. I mean, she's also in um, Guardians of the Galaxy volume two she was one of the big gold people which actually makes complete sense
1: <laughs> see i completely forgot about that
0: <laughs> well i i yeah i think she was the one that they they tended to have the close-up of the face on so yeah that would make sense actually that's probably that that shot of her face i think is what i was recognizing because she had <laughs> that dull bored expression that she uses in this film a lot i think <laughs> was the one she had in guardians <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh. How did you feel? She was as a as a villain.
0: I really liked her. She's got that um, what's the word? I don't want to. Uh, it's not charm as such, but she's got a likability to her that you know going in because they tell you that she is a diehard fanatic in her beliefs and that she's very much like if she could, she'd be top. You know, in the Nazi party. And, you know, she's harboring all of these former Nazis. And yet when Henry Cavill meets her, she's nice, charming, helps him, uh, gets annoyed at the staff. Admittedly, he set them up. But, you know, and everything about her is the opposite of what you kind of expect. And I like that because unlike the guy playing her husband, she is subtle in what she does you know everything is done behind closed doors so to the outside world you'd never suspect her and i think she played that really well like by the time she starts showing you how much she you don't want to be around her (laughs) it's too late because you can't escape which is great
1: you know it's funny talking about um how you learn the setup to her character this movie did a very good job with the visualized exposition like we said like the opening credits you know that was really great visual exposition and the sequence where they show you the guy was like like joseph mangala or whatever the sequel where they show you the guy was like a a nazi butcher like yes that that was done very well like they they did a very good job of or or you know like the slideshows explaining the background of napoleon or whatever like they had a lot of exposition to give you about each of these characters and they did it in a Uh, rather than just having somebody come in and just blah 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 tell you you know just just explain everything to you they did a good job visually with that yeah no
0: i i agree i really enjoyed that i mean they they did a good job as well with instead of having like suicide squad-esque uh flashback scenes they managed to convey the same amount i think almost better in that especially for like the background of the two main characters, you kind of just saw like a a visual representation of their dossiers because seeing those photos of like, you know, a bombed out Germany, for example, with Napoleon Solo selling artwork, that I think makes you feel more like it's from that era than if they'd actually just showed you it because that texture of the photo of being weathered and aged and in black and white and slightly sepia. Yes, you could mimic all of that with the film, but I think there's a part of the audience that would know that it's false. The photo is obviously false too, but for some reason that just works. And it's the same with Ilya when you see him doing like his, um, ah, um I can't think of the name now, but the Russian martial arts that's unique to them. They, you know, and you see him practicing that. But again, you hear the effects, you see the information, but it's just a, a static image but it makes it feel quite alive. And like you say, it holds your attention far better than if you'd actually just seen him take some people apart, because we already know he can do that. They make that very clear from the first minute you see him that in a one-on-one fight, in close combat, Evie is probably going to (laughs) win.
1: I did like that thing, the weird slap move that he did on that guy to knock him out. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yes, where the guy is stood perfectly upright, but he's fallen asleep. To be (laughs) honest, that was all of their scenes together where they're trying to outspy each other. And that, you know, that was kind of one of them. They were they were my favorite parts of the whole film. It's also kind of uh, interesting because I feel like if if I don't want to say younger people, but if you don't know the like the history, you might be surprised. which one of them is more technically advanced than the other, because I'll wager there's a lot of people that went into it expecting the Russian spy to be using antiquated equipment and the American to have all the the top-of-the-line stuff, but they don't because the Soviet Union put pretty much all of its money into its spies and police stuff, whereas Solo is perfectly happy to use whatever he's been using for years, and Elia has this state of the art tech and I love the fact that sometimes they'll let Elia get the joke like when they're cutting the fence and he has a a laser cutter which he's just like cuts the fence in like 2 seconds flat compared to Solo trying to clip his way through but then mm. you know literally 3 minutes later he can't get the door open using his fancy drill and Solo gets it open in like 10 seconds by just picking a lock you know, one of the most basic skills that someone in his profession would have. And I do like the way that they constantly show that they're both good at what they do and they can do similar things, but the way they do it is completely different. So they're they're both suitable for almost any task, but their preferences and their execution styles are totally different. It does also lead to one scene that genuinely made me burst out laughing because I'd forgotten it was coming is when they're in that room and then they get discovered and they all, you know, they start getting shot at and then Elia, in his infinite wisdom sees a window with some water, shoots to the window and jumps out in a diving position and then you hear a smack and an "ah," uh, And then <laughs> Solo somehow doesn't hear that and does exactly the same thing and follows him and crashes into the concrete because there was a little bit of a, a little bit of a path before you get to the water there lads and oh that that just makes me laugh every single time mostly because i forget it's coming but yeah the commitment they have to just essentially dive out the window without checking it and then oh that's not water <laughs> it's just really
1: <brilliant. laughs> well, the other great gag of of uh ilia who's who's being chased in the boat and yep. uh and, and Napoleon, who's fallen out of the boat, and Napoleon's just like chilling in that truck, eating a sandwich and having a little picnic lunch. You
0: know, <laughs> yeah, and he's got like a, a a bottle of port. He's got the radio on. He's he's loving life, and he's just watching Elia drive back and forth. And I love the fact that Elia doesn't even notice. You can literally hear him like, "Hang on, cowboy!" <laughs> it's like he's not even there. <laughs>
1: But eventually, like, that's the moment where he does commit to saving, uh, saving Ilya, you know, like, that is the moment like, when he he has to drive that truck into the water, you know, like, that is when he, uh, you know, you can see that he's all in and this is his partner now and he has to save him, you know. Well,
0: I, I think it's also because in that moment, you have that genuine connection where he's like, he is actually trying to to do what he believes in and i think that's one of the only aspects of him that napoleon respects at that point which is that he's giving a 100 percent, and i'm driving away essentially and i could but you know that wouldn't sit right with him because you know go back to earlier in the film and him and gabby are both trying to persuade him not to beat up the guys that are going to rob him and (laughs) again The comedy just works so well for me because you know you've got a guy that could easily kill these people without even breaking a sweat, but he's got to try and pretend that he's scared. And I love the fact that he always justifies it, like, "I am still like a Russian man, and I would fight back even if I was an architect. You know, I wouldn't kill them, but I would punch him." (laughs) Just like, yeah, okay, okay, big guy.
1: even when Gabby's uncle is making fun of him, he's, he's like, you don't look like a sort of architect. You know? No, that, that line does
0: make me chuckle. Cause you know, unfortunately, like you say, his skill set is not with people. Like, I don't know why <laughs> he was picked to be the deep cover guard. Well, I do know it's cause he's got a Russian accent, but you know, he, <laughs> he, he could have easily navigated that by just basically matching wits with him because that you would expect that. Like he doesn't know like, a. Uh, Oh, God, this is a difficult thing to say. The character he is playing, like the cover that he has, wouldn't know that the uncle is this Nazi guy in charge of the organization. So there's absolutely no reason why he wouldn't get pissed off at the fact that he's insulting him and be like, well, what would an architect look like? You know, he is massive, so use it. You know what I mean? It's like he, he could have played that in multiple different ways, but obviously... They needed an excuse to for him to walk away and go in the bathroom and beat up some irritating young people instead. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Seriously, if you're one of those like little Italian twink boys in the bathroom or whatever, would you, and you saw that massive dude come in, would you have tried to fuck with him like that? <laughs> no, especially since
0: it's so obvious because he doesn't exactly hide it how like upset right. he is, and <laughs> and then he's like being exceptionally nice, like. I need to use the sink and please. Yeah. And it's, and it's just like, there's just no excuse for it. But then, you know, I feel like that was done deliberately because yes, it looks like a nice day out at the races and you've got these fancy people with their shiny jewels and their fine suits, but actually spend five minutes with any of them. And these are some of the worst people on the planet. You know mm. what I mean? I think, I think that's. Part of why they did it, partly is because it was funny and it helps set up what happens next. But also, I think, you know, everyone at that party who isn't a spy, because there's more spies there than people realize, um, it, it, it was just to show how awful as people they were. Because that is the other thing that I do love about this film is how much Hugh Grant's character is in it before Hugh Grant's character is actually in it. Because the back of his head gets way more screen time in the first half of this film than he does.
1: <laughs> And yeah, that's the greatest tragedy of not having a sequel is is that we don't get more Hugh Grant. We don't get Hugh Grant as their leader.
0: I I it does make me laugh again going back to the fact that Henry Cavill is playing the American. I feel like Hugh Grant was cast just so they could find someone whose English accent was thicker and posher than Henry's so that he would sound more American by comparison. <laughs> <laughs> Because when he starts talking, Henry suddenly sounds very American.
1: <laughs> so I've given it some thought. If we did get a sequel, you know, like, obviously they would have to replace our army. And I thought, what about that that kid, that guy who played Ivan Drago's son in Creed 2? Do you think he would make a good Ilya? Uh,
0: I haven't seen Creed 2, so I, I don't know. I think anyone could make a good Ilya. I think the script would be the hardest thing. It's like, can you deliver Guy Ritchie dialogue and comedy whilst keeping it serious? So given all the good things I've heard about Creed Two, I would say he probably could. But uh, I I don't know who you would cast instead, because, again, he's got to be massive, which immediately causes problems, because being taller than Henry Cavill and being like one of the biggest and scariest dudes, whilst also being able to pull off your own kind of charming and comedy it's not the easiest thing to balance
1: <laughs> this movie hit such a magical moment of being able to get all these people at that time you know yeah <laughs> at that right time <laughs> just one year later and and you know they they all would have been much different
0: well it, it's like when um Hugh Grant you know cuz Henry Cavill gets into the party in the first place by pickpocketing him and then i love the fact that when they meet back up with him he's very much kind of showing him up by just saying you know you're very good with your hands and then you know and then they they keep he keeps poking him and again i don't think that role would have worked unless the person playing it like hugh grant did realizes that he's got to be the super spy that is so obvious but you can't like work out what the angle is yet like he's up above the other two. Cause I mean, Hugh Grant basically is James Bond because he even is a commander in the Royal Navy. So it's basically the same role, but it's one of those things where, like you say, all of the actors have to be able to bounce off of each other. Cavill and, uh, Hammer, we got, like I said, twat in real life, but they do have good chemistry together. Any scene that is just the two of them bickering, chatting, you know, discussing what they're going to do and disagreeing. I can sit there and watch it because it works. Whereas if you've got uh two leads that you can tell there's just nothing there between them, it it, it you could they could have the best dialogue or the best action scenes in the world, you're going to get bored. <laughs> <laughs>
1: La- sorry it was that was uh I refused
0: to give him any compliments <laughs> oh no no <laughs> so yeah i do like uh as well that um when they're going around and they're showing off the you know their different aspects of their characters you were saying about how Gabby was trying to seduce Ilya whereas Solo pretty much sleeps with every woman that gives him more than five minutes to talk to him, which I, I found hilarious because like he, he takes like two different members, I think of the hotel staff end up <laughs> sleeping with him. And then <laughs> when the, the, the literal villain of the film, Elizabeth Vicky, she like goes there to accuse him of having stolen something. And then in, instead is like, Oh, actually, never mind. You guys go back home. I'm going to stay here for the night. <laughs>
1: He's, he's irresistible that's you know absolutely that's part of being a super spy you had to be absolutely irresistible you know
0: <laughs> exactly and it i it, i it I love the fact that it leads into again that comical moment of I- Ilya is worried that you know they're about to be found out or he's in trouble and then he turns the bug on and then he hears what's actually going on in that room and his face is just like oh okay, um uh <laughs> Mm. he's just a, he's like a kid it's like what do i do now <laughs> <laughs> oh I, and again it, it leads into that good moment where they think that he is angry because of the whole like the fiance hits on gabby and then they think he's like having a meltdown because he's locked himself in the bathroom and then when he does open the door no, he's turned it into a dark room and somehow he took all these photos and he's developing pictures and he's like, oh, yeah, you know, the this film has been dipped with a special kind of isotope so it can detect radiation. And I was like, <laughs> OK, <laughs> that was not what I was expecting at all. <laughs>
1: no i love it you know i love it and once again this movie did such a great job with like all the little gadgets and the the technology stuff and and how many different types of vehicles uh they had like that whole end chase where like where napoleon is like the dune buggy thing and and uh and when Ilya gets his big great escape moment oh my god i loved it i loved it i was so so happy
0: Yeah, I I definitely will talk about that ending bit because I do like that ending bit. But I also got to say, like we were talking about Elizabeth and one of my favorite scenes with her and Henry Cavill is when he goes into our office. But she's being currently told that he's a spy because Gabby allegedly gave them up. And then she spikes all of the drinks, which I think is just, I love the mental image of that, of her just going to every single one, like, <laughs> like taking all these lids off and putting them back on before he has a chance to get there. Because she doesn't seem like that sort of person that would do anything in a rush.
1: Well, maybe she has a secret bar cart. She has a separate pre-poisoned bar cart.
0: Yeah, that's a <laughs> scary thought.
1: <laughs> I think I would not put that past her, you know, because you never know when you're going to need to poison someone.
0: That's true, actually.
1: But that was my favorite funny bit was how how nonplussed he was about being yeah. poisoned. Like like, oh, this has happened before. I'll go lay down. <laughs> I, I love
0: the fact that they just have this like very honest exchange where they're talking to each other, and then she's sort of like, "What are you doing?" And then, like you say, he's just like, "Yeah, I've 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 been here before, and I'm not going to hurt my head this time, so I'm getting cozy." <laughs> And then I also love, like, like I said, the duality of her character. Like, she basically lays herself out on the sofa above him, and he's like, only my mother calls me Napoleon. I think that's what he says. And then as she sort of loses, uh, sorry, as he sort of loses consciousness, it comes back, and you still see her, but now her facial expression has changed, and she looks way more menacing, and she's like, you know, call me mum, or whatever. And now, you know, they're trapped. And both of these characters, both her and the uncle, suddenly they become the most terrifying people in the room because it's like they can finally let let themselves out of these nice, mild mannered people that they have to pretend to be every day. And it's like, nope, we like torturing people because it's fun, not because we want anything. (laughs) And then, like you say, you get that great scene, Quince, of the Nazi doctor of death Uh, Uncle Rudy is actually the fifth horseman of the apocalypse, which is just a great nickname. (laughs) (laughs) And again, they managed to make what could have been a really dark, well, it still is a dark scene, but they they give it just that little bit of... It is humorous, but I almost feel like it kind of humanizes everybody and makes it more believable because he's so determined to use old-fashioned technology that the wires keep shorting and therefore it doesn't always work. And I think everybody has that uncle or that granddad that gets to a point with technology where they refuse to upgrade. And that's what that reminded me of. It's like, I am a terrifying doctor of death. No, I refuse to upgrade to Windows seven. 95 is fine.
1: <laughs> <You know? laughs> but that also gives you like the great moments where, like we were saying, like Ilya and, and Napoleon are both being played by their handlers, you know, like uh, the- when, they have those moments where they're like, "Yeah, but if we hand this guy in to to our governments, like he's never gonna uh, be punished. Like you know that they'll give him like a cushy little job or something, you know? They're like it, it and then luckily the problem is solved for them. But <laughs> but it is nice that like like there's that moment and the moment where they had to decide what to do about the the disc, you know, where like they both do realize that like their governments do suck, you know?
0: Yeah. Oh, a hundred percent. I mean. The scientist one in particular, I refuse to believe was done on accident. Like you can quite clearly see that they can peripherally see the fire and <laughs> they just both choose not to react until it's well past the point of intervention. And then it's like, oh, look at that. He's dead. What a shame.
1: <laughs> <laughs> literally check it. You know?
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. And um, yeah, that, that we we then get One of my favorite sequences in any action film, because it's so rare, is when it's time to call in the heavy fire support, it's not America or Russia that they get help from. It's us. The Great British Royal Navy comes and lends a hand, which at the time, especially, probably would have been the case because our Navy's always been really good. Uh, Not so much these days, because nothing's really good these days. But that's besides the point. (laughs) But I I do really like the way that they showed basically all of the major world powers that were involved in World War II were basically now working together to try and prevent what basically a bunch of ex Nazis were trying to achieve. And as you said, you get that fantastic sequence that I really like the way they do it, where these characters that have traditionally spent the entire film undercover trying to fight in the shadows or trying to not fight at all. And now they're both handed automatic weapons and, you know, they go in with the special boat service and guns blazing.
1: They get with their little tactical berets. I love yep. a good tactical beret.
0: Tactical berets <laughs> all the way. And, I, and <laughs> the fact that they show that they're able to keep up with special forces and Marines and it just works for me. And instead of having these long drawn out gunfight sequences that I feel like other directors might have been tempted to do. I like the fact that Guy just decided we're just going to montage it. You know, we're going to, we're going to do this. Yeah. yeah. We're going to do the same visual design that we did for all the other sort of montages and exposition delivery. But now it's going to be gunfire. It's going to be showing how easily it is for the Navy to essentially come in. And once they know where the bad guys are, the bad guys will have no chance. Like I like that message. It's like, they know they can't win. They don't even try and fight back. Like Once they realize what's happening, they just immediately go to escape because obviously they have that missile. But that that whole sequence was just great. And like you say, it just... It was a nice way of delivering the message of what was happening without it taking like 20 minutes.
1: <laughs> so that's what we've learned from this movie. Is The guy, Richie, is very good at giving succinct uh, storytelling beats.
0: Well, it's funny, too, because if you watch this film, there is a lot of action in it, and there is a lot of comedy in it, and it's somehow still serious, which I think is why we both like it. But if you go and then watch something like, say, Wrath of Man, which Guy Richard did with Jason Statham...
1: Which is fantastic, yeah.
0: it, it Yeah, but the, there's there's... I wouldn't say there's barely any humor. There is humor, but it is a much darker story. But also... Instead of, as we've said here, you know, the action is very playful or it's shortcuts or it's done in montages, in Wrath of Man, that's the opposite. That is every detail of the gory action is shown and it's slow and it's deliberate, but he never pulls the camera away. He never decides, you know, I'm going to quickly get through this. It's almost like the polar opposite of this film. And there are so many... Examples of Guy Ritchie doing stuff that, in my opinion, isn't just the Guy Ritchie formula. And it does kind of annoy me sometimes when people say, "Oh, it's a Guy Ritchie film. I already know what it's going to be like." Well, there's quite a lot of films that I think will prove that statement wrong, but you've never given them a go.
1: Well, I mean, I think uh, like uh, after this, he did King Arthur, which was a slog. Like King Arthur was not good, and I had hoped that that King Arthur was with, with uh, Charlie Hunnam. You remember that yeah. one? Yeah, like, I thought that would be, uh, you know, like, this, like, fast-paced and fun and, and, you know, but instead that was, like, that just wasn't good. But my other favorite Guy Richard movie is Rock and Rolla, which I feel people don't give enough credit to. I think that's a great one.
0: I agree. That is another one that I wish I'd had a sequel, because it perfectly sets one up at the end.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And and Gerard Butler, once again, that we're... We're paying respect and was it January? Is that the Yes,
0: yes. Even though it might not be January by the time people hear this.
1: <laughs> In our hearts it's always January.
0: <laughs> yes, I yeah, I mean I you know, I watch films whenever I want, not just because the month happens to line up with his name. <laughs> but no, it's true. Like you say, I feel like Guy Ritchie, you know, I really liked The Gentleman, which is not really action heavy at all. That's more of a a dialogue piece. And I really like that one. And if you put The Man from Uncle, The Gentleman, Rock and Roller, Wrath of Man, and some of his like older stuff, like Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels, some people might look at it and go, well, half of them are gangster films, which isn't correct, but I can understand why they think that. And the other ones are just like hollywood movies and it's like yeah but if you actually watch them they're not hollywood movies they're not gangster movies one is and that's the gentleman but the rest of them aren't and if you actually sit down and see them all they're not actually that similar they might have some overlap here and there, but it's you know they feel very different to one another and maybe that's just me but i feel like he's one of those directors that People say is overrated, but it's because they've only watched his overrated work. <laughs>
1: <laughs> because I mean, obviously, when he came out, I mean, you know, Snatch and Lockstock, You know, uh, I mean, of course, those are similar tonally. Those were his first two, you know, his first two efforts, right? And uh, wait, didn't he do the other one about the record executive guy or something that was also? Yeah, a yeah,
0: that that rings I a bell.
1: Can- yeah, yeah, I remember it wasn't I remember I didn't like it and I haven't seen the gentleman yet, I still haven't seen that, but you say that's worth it.
0: I like it. I mean, you know, I'm not saying it's perfect, but but, you know, I like it because the actors who are in it are not necessarily playing the roles that you would expect them to. Um, like Charlie Hunnam's in it, but he's like a almost a clean cut glasses wearing, straight talking, serious guy. And, you know, you've got Hugh Grant is in it, but instead of being the, you know, the posh spy like he is in this one or the upper class gentleman that he often portrays, he's, um, a journalist and he has like a a common down to earth accent. And he's like the complete opposite of, I think, what most people think of when they hear, Oh, Hugh Grant's in this. And there's a scene in that that I, I will never not laugh at, which I won't ruin for you, but you'll know it when you get to it. Cause very young people are stupid enough to say things out loud and he's in the room and they shouldn't have said them <laughs> but it, it just I, I just like it because it just works for me and Matthew McConaughey being the main character again you know I'm one of those actors that I feel like a one trick pony but pair him with the right director and it works you know
1: alright then I'm gonna bump that up a little bit w-
0: when you hate it uh, I don't want to know <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> i'm not one of those people who's gonna you know, like, i don't harp for for days on the things that i hate i try not to
0: so when uh when you first watched this did you see gabby's betrayal coming and did you think that that's because she was a double agent this entire time or was that all just like a whoa moment for you
1: yeah, that was. I think that was a whoa moment, you know. <laughs> but when you think about it, it's like it shouldn't have been, you know.
0: <laughs> well, I think the thing is, is that the betrayal scene is done really well because she she is such a weird character all the way through the film, as we've said. And then the fact that she suddenly just <laughs> sells them out, and she says, "You know, I I was using them to get to you because I want to see my father." Which is sorry, we haven't really mentioned is that's what the film's actually about, trying to get to her father. But,
1: <laughs> but 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 me, like she had no it felt like she she didn't know her father at all did
0: she no that's i'm pretty i'm pretty sure she like she hadn't seen him since she was like really young so yeah it's been like i think it's like i'm sure i remember it. it's been like 18 years since she's last seen him or something which mm-hmm, again mm-hmm. you you know i get it from a film point of view but you also think there wouldn't really be that much of a connection there to like drive her to go across multiple countries into enemy territory and put her own life at risk but then when they meet up they have this big emotional reunion and i i agree with you i was sort of sadly going but i didn't think you really knew him you know
1: right exactly yeah
0: (laughs) but then again i suppose you could again argue that some of that was because she knows what's at stake like if he does fix these nuclear weapons and then essentially gives Nazis nukes, which is a sentence that's terrifying. That is definitely a reason to sort of suddenly, you know, connect with your dad maybe and try and get it to not happen. (laughs) But uh, again, uh, something else that I like from a story point of view is that the villains aren't stupid and they work out really quickly that he's just stalling, which I like because sometimes if you make the villains too stupid, they kind of lose their threat. Whereas uh Victoria, Elizabeth Dwecky, she never does. You know, all the way to the end, she feels like it, she's got something up her sleeve that you haven't taken into account, Um which in turn, you know, her arrogance is kind of what gets her killed. But that was kind of always going to be her character flaw, wasn't it?
1: Mm-hmm. yeah the the boat scene was very charming when they they show you how hugh grant was setting things up you know uh after the fact and so forth like that was a very good reveal as well you know like it once again the it, 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 very 60s spy show type reveals and and uh and double crosses and and uh underhanded tricks you know i i like it i thought they did that well
0: yeah no i agree it's um the fact that they had to get Napoleon on the radio to essentially get her angry enough to to answer so that they could lock onto their position i thought was a nice touch because again the actual sequence of events for them killing her husband was pretty much all Elia so the fact that they left you know the fact that killing her was left to Napoleon was again a great balancing act of both agents were required to get the job done you couldn't have at any point just gone, ah, we don't really need Elia or Napoleon anymore, because without either of them, it wouldn't have worked. Once you get that reveal that Gabby is actually a spy as well, you kind of realise that actually that goes for her as well, because she's the one that actually has the idea about the fact that the two warheads will track each other, because if she hadn't have got that information, wouldn't have mattered. None of that would have been possible, which, again, it sounds simple, but Weaving all of that in and making it feel natural and giving everybody a contribution to the success of the film is not something that every film is that good at.
1: Right, right. And especially the fact that, like, they made Gabby so capable and the fact she was a mechanic and she understood things. Like, they gave her... You know, they gave her a skill, they gave her a skill set, you know, she had a skill set that them I scared.
0: I would argue that she had too, because although they call her a mechanic, she's a she can outdrive some of the
1: other spies, which is just. You know? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but put Gabby in a 60s Fast and Furious movie. Yeah, man, that may well, there
0: you go. She's she's Toretto's grandmother. That's that's the that's going to be the next Fast and Furious <laughs> film.
1: <laughs> they'll throw her in with uh what do you call it uh michael caine in uh the the, the italian, italian job, job.
0: That, yeah. that would be pretty funny <laughs> yeah like i said i i think it's a really good conclusion and the fact that everybody gets a moment it's the same as like what you were saying on the boat when napoleon goes back and saves Elia, but then later in the film when napoleon's the one that's captured Elia gets to save him and again you you if that's the part that sticks in your head because of the torture you might go away thinking, oh, it's a bit weird that he rescued him, but it's like, well, no, because they rescued each other. You know, they both, at one point in the film, had to save the other one. They both had that moment of, when they were bickering, they both get to one-up each other a few times, and it's just, in, or they're shown to be equal, like when they debug each other, which is just hilarious, when they throw their bugs back at each other. Um And then by the end of the film, they're actually comrades, and you know, when they get those orders that the tape is all that matters, even if you have to kill the American or the Russian, you can see that they would both do it. But there's also, like you said, that moment of, but should I do it? Because realistically, this information shouldn't be in anyone's hands. And I love the fact that because they had Manchurian Ilia Ilya to basically go full for the motherland mode, he probably would have started a fight with Solo, which considering Solo was waiting for it and he had his own gun, I genuinely don't know what would have happened in that event. But I love the fact that he disarmed him by giving him his father's watch back, which was this recurring plot point for him all the way through the film. And then the second he does that, Ely is sort of like, oh, well, I I definitely can't kill him now. (laughs) It's like, yes, I am friend. Me friend, Ilia, <laughs> <laughs> And sadly, we never got the sequel that they kind of teased at the end where the actual man from Uncle Organization or the Uncle Organization kind of comes together under Waverly.
1: Yeah, it's it's, uh, it's a shame. It, it, it exists somewhere with our, our Rock and Roller sequel.
0: Yeah, it is kind of sad. Until really you reminded me about Rock and Roller, I'd kind of forgotten that this isn't even like the first one of a good guy Ritchie film that just doesn't go anywhere, because I feel like, um, even though it did get a sequel, I think people, when I was talking about, like, you know, the the films that people are familiar with, the Sherlock Holmes films that he did with Robert Downey Jr. and Jude Law probably spring to the top of that list alongside the other ones, and even that couldn't maintain its momentum to get a third entry. I mean, allegedly they're they're trying to do that again, but. I do find it weird with Guy Ritchie. He doesn't seem to be the sort of person that cares or wants to care about constantly churning out sequels. It feels like he massively prefers to do original works, even if it's with the same actors. Because, like, he's just done Operation Fortune, which, again, starred Jason Statham and a bunch of other good people. Yeah, which sounds
1: good. I can't wait for that.
0: Yeah, well, I think I saw news today at time of recording that it's coming out on Blu-ray, which. Considering it hasn't come out in the cinema, I was a tad confused about. And then when I looked, apparently there's like some problem with one of the studios involved that's collapsed or something. And I don't know enough about that for this to be a reliable source of information. But I found it weird that there was like a Blu-ray disc and they were like, oh, yeah, it's coming out soon. And I was like, oh, okay." And then, yeah, I saw all these comments.
1: Is it will it be will it be on streaming somewhere? what are they gonna do that's that's really strange yeah i
0: mean it probably will be on streaming somewhere but at least it's coming out on blu-ray as well because that's the worst thing like especially these days the fact that films just might not come out anymore cough back girl cough and for no real reason
1: <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. you know if, can i ask you a question maybe you don't know the answer to either but so thinking about those sherlock holmes films like, only just this month, only at the beginning of the year, did Sherlock Holmes become public domain, right? Like, that's that's the thing. It only just became, the character only just became public domain. Yet, I feel as though we've never lived in a time where there weren't multiple versions of Sherlock. Yes. Right? So, how is that possible? Like, who owned Sherlock Holmes Uh, maybe maybe some listener can answer this question for me like like because i was like i was convinced the character had always been public domain but apparently not
0: no i mean sir arthur conan doyle wrote the books and i'm pretty sure it's his estate that until recently still owned him i think it's just that their estate was very much like give us money you get character and weren't particularly picky
1: Because at any given time, you had Elementary on CBS, you had the, you know, the BBC Sherlock, you had the, you know, the Robert Downey Jr. ones. Like, it just seemed to me like we've never lived in a time where there weren't, like, multiple versions of Sherlock Holmes somehow. Well, yeah, I mean,
0: even, even like, films that were made, you know, for, like, my dad's generation, you know, there was multiple iterations of Sherlock Holmes. I mean, even actors that had previously, like, been in Sherlock Holmes projects came back and played him because, you know, Christopher Lee played him. And he had been in, like, somebody else's Sherlock Holmes but as, like, the bad guy. And then I think, you know, Ian McKellen played him in, like, that old man Sherlock film. And Henry Cavill, of course, has played him in in the Enola Holmes films. Yeah. So, yeah, (laughs) I don't know what it is about Sherlock Holmes that I think just appeals to everyone. And he never seems to go out of fashion. Like, from the moment they started making films about him, and I'm pretty sure, I might be wrong, but I'm pretty sure that, there are genuine black and white sherlock holmes movies so he's been like a constant part of cinema from like the word go and he just never seems to have gone out of fashion which is actually kind of special and i don't think enough people to kind of talk about that because there aren't many characters that have that claim
1: (laughs) this is true like that and maybe dracula or something maybe you know (laughs) yeah like those those
0: classic sort of Stories. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe it's because it's a classic story that was already so famous when it was a book that people always know about it. Like kids growing up, always have Sherlock Holmes as a reference because there'll be something in a cartoon, there'll be something in a book, there'll be something in a children's tale, or even video games. You know, whatever the medium of the day might be, there are always always going to be references or something original, especially now. Uh, cause there's so much, you know, new original stuff. I mean, somewhere I've got my, um, Sherlock Holmes versus Cthulhu novels. So. <laughs> <laughs> Which, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what it is about Sherlock Holmes, but it is an interesting topic. Completely got, got my brain going in another direction now. <laughs>
1: I've been dying to ask somebody that who might know. I've been dying to ask a British person that. I don't know. (laughs) My
0: personal favorite memory, and she's going to hate me for saying this, but I don't think she listens, so I'm all good. But we went to, this was years ago, we went to London and we were at a cafe and it turned out we were only around the corner from 221B Baker Street. And Mm -hmm. if you go there in London, it's basically a museum stroke shop to all things Sherlock Holmes. Like you could pick up all the all the novels. You can see stuff and like a stylized version of what the rooms would have looked like. And I remember I remember having this conversation because I was with my dad and my ex-girlfriend and my ex-time looked at us both confused and said, so is it like they've preserved it all this time then? And I'm looking at her like, what? Anyway, anyway, (laughs) <laughs> to, to, I think Wendy has already worked out where this is going, but to cut out a lot of confusion, this ended with the sentence of "But Sherlock Holmes was a real person," and I'm looking at my dad, and my dad's looking at me, and we like, "No,
1: he isn't. <laughs> no, he wasn't." <laughs> That's hilarious. Did she also think Harry Potter is real? No, 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 no. To be fair, not not Harry Potter, but. I feel like
0: sometimes I feel like that happens because you get so used to these stories being so prevalent and it's, if it's set in the past, like a decent way into the past, people just, I think some people just assume it must be true because it's plausible in inverted commas, you know? Mm -hmm. And I just find that so hilarious. Yeah.
1: mm, Yeah.
0: Whereas if, if it's like, Here's an old story, and it's about you know them hunting ghosts and fighting demons. It's like, oh well, clearly that's not real. But this is about a detective in London, and you know he solves crime with his uh, his mate. And I think there's a an element nowadays that's people just sort of go, oh yeah, I, I believe that. You know, that that sounds about <laughs> right. I've I've heard those stories. <laughs> <laughs>
1: But it's also interesting, because, like, I mean, you know, we have detected things now, like Glass Onion, and, you know, like, uh, obviously, uh, uh, what do you call that, that character uh, of Benoit Blanc. But meanwhile, the Agatha Christie characters, like, you have, like, uh, Hercule Poirot and Miss Marple, like, those legendary Agatha Christie characters, but none of them have ever had the mainstay of Sherlock Holmes either. Like, they may pop up like death on the Nile or something every once every 10 years or something it feels like Sherlock is way more consistent
0: I think um in the UK both of them have been way more consistent on television but you're right in terms of films Mm -hmm. not so much because like growing up my grandmother especially there would be a murder mystery type show on the television when I walked in the house whether it was Poirot or Miss Marple and there was another one that I can't think of the name of but Television wise, that seemed to be where those sorts of stories went. I don't know if that is a licensing thing because maybe the estates that owned them or the people that had the rights didn't, didn't necessarily know who to negotiate with. Or maybe it was just a case that the big companies didn't think that they were big enough and they didn't want to pay the money. Whereas Sherlock Holmes has always been, you make a Sherlock Holmes film and you will make money. Even if, you know, even if it's like a TV movie, I think. You know, people are going to watch it because it's Sherlock Holmes. Mm. I might be completely wrong, <laughs> but it's a fun, it's a fun <laughs> conversation.
1: Yeah, we've had our good detective digression there. All right, so here, final question: Do you think that in the current Russian-Ukrainian climate, that you could make a, a a story in which we have someone who has to work with Russians
0: and and set it in the modern day?
1: Yeah, yeah. Do you think that's possible? Because I was thinking about how, like, during the Cold War, I mean, we we had this terrible, this horrible nuclear threats. Like Russia was this big enemy, and it was it was terrible. But then you still had these these characters, like like Ivan Drago, and these sort of cartoonish Russian characters in movies and stuff. But I feel like right now things are so fresh. Like you can't. They're changing Russian characters in video games. They're changing Russian characters in, in things. You know, like. Well
0: i feel like you could i don't think anybody would because i don't think anyone's brave enough to try but i i feel like the answer is in the original star trek when they were you know at the kind of height of the cold war alongside the man from uncle and they put a russian man on the bridge of what was essentially in, in a lot of people's eyes an american spaceship it obviously wasn't if you go into the law i'm not here for that argument but But I love the idea that they were basically saying that all of the problems we're having today are not going to be tomorrow's problems. And I feel like Man From Uncle, even though it did it differently, was trying to say the same thing by having an American and Russian agent work together because when it was made, those were the two big superpowers, you know, that were constantly going at each other. So it made sense that if you were going to make an agency of the best, that it would be those two. If you made a show today... I think you'd have to do the same thing where you'd have to acknowledge the bad blood and make it a part of the show, but maybe show that the individual people don't represent the country or the country doesn't represent them, however you want to look at it. Because I think one of the biggest differences between Russia then to Russia now is that it's much harder to silence regular people. And we know for a fact that the Russian people do not approve of what their country is doing. And you know, they mm-hmm. protest as best as they can in the place that they live and they try to make it very clear that it ain't them. And I think if you leaned into that aspect of it, it would work. But if you tried to make it like a uh a patriot type thing where everybody's just praising their own country, I I don't think that would work.
1: Well, I'm glad we've uh had had our global politics conversation. Yeah,
0: I mean I've gone off topic on a lot of different things, but that was uh that was not one I expected, so thank you for that, Wendy.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, thank you for having me on.
0: That's all right. I I feel like we kind of went a bit all over the place with this one, but um, was there is, is there anything else that you wanted to talk about specifically? Because I know you were excited to talk about like the music and the fashion, which you kind of did. So, was there any other random uh, yeah. aspect of this film that you wanted to bring into the light?
1: Nope. I think we I think we've uh, we've worked it.
0: Fair enough. I, I will just say quickly because <laughs> um, since we were talking about Russia and uh, you know all of this sort of stuff, the climax of the film, which is you know they both get the order to kill the other one. There's a game I don't know if you've played it it's called Splinter Cell Conviction, and uh, the main character Sam Fisher is off doing his own thing. But in that particular game, they had a co op mode. And you played as two different agents and one was American and one was Russian. And they basically do the exact same thing that this film does, which is that at the start of the missions, they don't like each other. They don't get along. And all the dialogue reflects that. And then by the end of it, they're best buds and they've, you know, pulled each other out of the fire multiple times. And they now work together and you've worked with this person. And at the end of the campaign, the final mission of both players is kill the other one. And, it, and you have to hunt down the person that you've just spent eight hours or whatever it is working with. And the gameplay of that in itself is quite interesting to decide, dissect, but perhaps not on an action film podcast. But the actual story is so similar to Man from Uncle. I find it so interesting because they have to make that same decision of, we've got nukes. It was literally about nukes again. And, you know, both of our countries have now basically said we want them for ourselves. And Basically, whichever one kills the other agent, it doesn't matter. They'll regret the fact that they've just killed their friend and get really emotional. And because they're really emotional, they don't see the pilot come out of the pilot's seat and then they kill them and steal the nukes. And it's just I found it so interesting how similar the storyline is. And it's the same thing of like (laughs) Russia and America have to team up to stop like rogue nukes. (laughs) But yes, thank you for coming on, Wendy, and I hope everybody enjoyed their conversation. If you haven't seen The Man from Uncle, we've basically spoiled it for you. But I promise you, this is one of those films that even if you know what's going to happen, even if you know the story, you'll enjoy it. Because the chemistry of all the actors and the dialogue that they deliver and just the way that they they play it, it just works. It doesn't matter if you've seen it before. You're still going to laugh. You're still going to enjoy it. The action is tight. And it, it it perfectly balances humor and a darker tone, which is something that I feel like a lot of films, especially superhero ones at the moment, are not doing very well. So it's kind of nice to be reminded that it is possible. Hello, you're here. You're at the outro. You've made it to the very end. Also, before we get any further, I just want to confirm for those wondering, uh, yes, there are black and white. Sherlock Holmes films, there in fact are many of them. Quite a few of them even have the same uh, actor playing Sherlock Holmes. Whilst most people were probably thinking that I was referencing the Basil Rathbone Sherlock Holmes, who definitely counts, there is actually an actor that had played the role several times before him, which was Arthur uh, Wantner, I believe is how you say his name, and Ian Fleming as Dr. Watson. But as for the episode, itself that you've just listened to i want to extend thanks once again to wendy for coming on and having this discussion with me it was an absolute blast and as you heard we laughed a lot and uh i really enjoyed getting to talk to somebody that actually enjoyed this film perhaps more than i did which i didn't think would happen because uh as i say not many people seemed to be interested in this one as wendy said it it didn't do well in the domestic box office over in america And I struggle to find people that positively were talking about it. Now, I know a lot of our mutual friends like it as well, but again, I think the vast majority of them watched it after it came out. So yeah, for some reason this one didn't really click with people. I don't to this day really understand why, as it's one of my favourites, it's one of Wendy's favourites, so that was kind of more of an accident. I didn't know that Wendy single-handedly tried to save the box office. That did make me chuckle when she said that. Probably the most perfect person I could have had on to just basically share how much we love this film and some of our favorite scenes. So I hope you guys enjoyed that. And by kind of more sheer coincidence than planning, uh, the next film is also going to feature an American and a Russian teaming up in a kind of similar but not really storyline. Of Russian and American law enforcement agents this time trying to work together. And uh, this film is celebrating its 35th anniversary this year. So some of you who are really in the know will have already worked out what this is. But it is time to return to the 80s. And it is time to talk about the Arnold Schwarzenegger and James Belushi sort of classic, directed by Walter Hill, that is Red Heat. That will be the next film episode, but it will not be the next episode you hear, because the next episode that you are going to hear is a conversation with episode, and it's going to be a little bit different because it's not with a actor, sort of, it is with an actor, but it's actually with two Actors, directors, writers, producers, really more of a group. And that group is the Art School Dropouts. And if you've never heard of them, strap yourselves in, because trust me, you're going to enjoy our conversation. They are essentially an independent filmmaking group. You can find them on YouTube if you want to go and familiarize yourself with them. They have an absolute boatload of content of short films, of fight scenes, of concept fights, of series that was on Amazon. They're currently in the process of making a feature film that you're going to hear all about next week. And they are just two of the coolest people that I've had the pleasure of talking to, which I know I say every time I do one of these types of episodes. But I can't help it, man. I just seem to attract cool people. So thank you to Joey and to Steph for taking the time to talk with me. I could say with confidence that it is not the last time you've heard them on this show, because as you will hear next week, we got along really, really, really well, and uh, I think they just really want to come on and talk about films. So if you're listening to this, Steph, your episode's coming up next. Let's see what happens first. Will you hear this on the show, or will you hear it from me? Dun, dun, dun! But either way, guys, that is going to be it from me this week, and I shall see you very, very shortly. Take care of yourselves, be safe, stay frosty, and other random generic quotes here, but I will see you in the next one.
1: On the action